Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Subtle Storm. Thank you for joining me this week. Today, we're going to be talking about the self, the self concept, self phenomenas, and how we really gain our understanding of ourselves, more so like the basis of what it means to know how the self works, what it is. And we've talked about this in multiple different realms. And today, I'm going to kind of go more so based on science and statistical research. So bear with me. (laughs) If you might not be the most like research-oriented or fact-oriented individual and you like more conversational pieces, definitely check out other episodes of mine. Um, It's been a minute since I've done any like science-oriented or research-oriented podcast episodes. Of course, all of them have elements of it, but yeah, it's just been a minute. So Let's start with defining what self-concept is, and my definition of it is how we perceive ourselves in relation to external and internal factors that we present to ourselves and external stimuli or external people or objects and things like that. And there are a bunch of different phenomena that happen within this self-concept, And they are all examined at four different levels of interaction. So the social, the individual, the molecular, and the neutral. And our primary functions, which is more so what I'm going to be talking about today, is our representing, our affecting, and changing self. So our representing self is the way that people depict themselves to ourselves or to another which kind of hones in on self-concepts and self-presentation. And part of the challenges within the representing self um, function is that depicting self to self or to others is not a purely cognitive um, event, which is also kind of referring to this um, con- or this term that I use more frequently as subconscious. So it's not purely, we're not pr- purely aware of when it's happening or how it's happening. And it can be influenced by our moods, our emotions, which can also lead to self-deception and illusion. Um, and a lot of these, you know, correlate to our emotional understandings of self and our our self-awareness and also our attachment style, our conflict styles, um, which all of these are formed by our core wounds, our experiences, and our attachments. And, you know, another concept is that it also, you know, includes self-evaluation and self-appraisal, which leads to either self-confidence or self-pity, again, all relating to our experiences, our core wounds, and our attachments. As with any of these concepts, all of these experiences or all of these developments within our personality and within how we integrate the world into our perception, into our minds, and into our own integration of behaviors and understandings of behaviors and how we interact is all based off of our primary attachment figures, the core events that happened when we are in our developmental stage, all like early development stages, even some when we were in the womb, which I've talked about multiple of these concepts before in other episodes. But I mean, you think about the self before we became a self or had any understanding of us as a self, which none of us have an identity before we have an identity, which also means that None of us really have any self of, sense of self until we interact with other people. 
or until we interact with the world around us. So we come into this world completely blank-minded, and I've also attached so many different studies and research um, to other podcast episodes, which I'm happy to link more in the the, the, the show notes <laughs> um, in re- regards to those. I'm not going to repeat any of them, but basically, you know, for an example, there was a study done, I can't remember exactly which it was, but this child who grew up in um, the wilderness had only the sense and only its senses of communication and observation based off of the animals that surrounded it. So it observed, let's say, like monkeys, um, you know, communicating through signals and the baby picked up on those signals and started using them. And it's only understanding and perception of others um, and things outside of itself was the other animals. So you can think of, you know, having no sense of self and then observing other things um, and, and, you know, interacting with the world around you, you're going to start to kind of think that you are those things and that you need to be interacting in that same way if you know nothing else. And I believe even when that child was integrated into actual society, it still really struggled to fully understand how to communicate and fully understand how to present itself in a humanistic way that makes sense to our society because the society that they develop their core attachments to, (laughs) their core wounds and experiences were not of, you know, humanistic nature. They were of animalistic. So they still communicated animalistically, which says a lot about how we develop, you know, our, like, parents, the way that they you know, their micro-movements, their micro-attitudes um, towards us, their micro-movements, behaviors, different things that we really are gentle, or not gentle, but we are, like, very attuned to at a young age to pick up on naturally to, you know, develop this understanding of ourselves. We start to align those things as different characteristics. You know, our brains are incredibly intelligent. And other species and animals do this as well, but, you know, humans, of course, are a unique (laughs) breed and unique topic of study because of our cognitive abilities. And you think about, (laughs) you can think about, you know, different areas of your childhood and how, you know, certain things maybe such as, like, how, let's say your mom approached brushing your hair, for example, like, did your mom, like, push the comb through your hair? Did they shave all your hair off because they didn't want to deal with it? Did they force you to braid it, tangle it? Or were they really gentle and caring and loving about it and maybe spoke affirmations to you? You know, later in life, like, small little things like that when somebody else goes to maybe touch your hair or other things that are in relationship to that singular object that you develop this core wound or experience around starts to integrate itself into that later on experience. As we've talked about so many different times in so many different ways, that's really, like, how the world works, which, you know... But even, you know, examples of somebody, like, being loving towards you 
let's say, and trying to, you know, maybe comb your hair. I don't know if this is a random example, but trying to comb your hair as like a loving gesture. If you receive trauma about that at a young age, you're going to receive that as maybe hurtful or deceitful. And But it also really, like, this is a whole concept develops more understanding of how your primary attachment figures handled your needs and how they handled your emotions and, you know, your personal develop, like, de- development. Like, how did they, you know, support you in difficult times? How did they, you know, address your needs? Were they attentive to your needs? Were they neglectful? Um, and all of these things form, or were they inconsistent? You know, things like this, all of these form our attachment styles later in life, which, you know, relate, our attachment styles relate directly to primary attachment figures, which is our parents, which is also why you hear the terms of, like, you know, you're going to find somebody that's, you know, find a man that's like your dad or find a woman that's like your mom or opposite things like that. Because so much of our understandings of how we interact with people were began with the understanding of our parents are giving us all of our needs and everything and how we related to them and experience love and interaction with them shape the way that we view anybody else that comes in interaction with us, especially of the same gender. <laughs> Or, you know, yeah. But from this topic, gives us an understanding of how we develop self and how we present ourselves and how we develop this relationship um, of presenting even to ourselves. There's a lot of times where we might even be lying to ourselves or be kind of like deceitful in some ways, which I'm going to talk about to ourselves of what we're actually perceiving ourselves and what is actually real and truthful based off of our self-knowledge and self-understanding and things like that. The next primary function of the self is the affecting self, which is ways that people facilitate or limit our traits and behaviors, which, you know, correlates to self-enhancement and self-regulation which can also kind of boil down to encouraging or discouraging or um, encouraging or discouraging behaviors and limiting undesirable behaviors that might cause consequences that we might not want or understand. Um, Like I said, all these really do stem down from our childhood. So how did we learn how to self-evaluate? How do we learn to... um, understand what behaviors get a negative response or get a positive response and how have we carried that throughout our lives and how have we I'll talk about it later but how have we allowed you know other people to influence or change that behavior into a negative or positive sense and this changes based off self-knowledge how much we know about ourselves and how self-aware we are and based off of our self-control which can also be an example of like eating or drinking disorders um you know, self-knowledge leads to better decisions. (laughs) And also within this concept, we, you know, see this concept of self-awareness and self-actualization, as well as self-reflection. So we think about self-actualization, which also kind of means more, if you don't know, on the lines of, like, how do we actualize our skill sets and use them in a constructive and meaningful, keyword, (laughs) way that will, you know, give us positive results, which is that same behavioral cause and effect that we see in the effective self. And there has been studies done that prove that self-reflective reasoning plays a central role in the development of ourselves and our self-awareness and understanding. 
But at the same time, this effect can be impacted by our level of meaningfulness that we associate with being self-reflective. So if you, you know, find meaning in, you know, taking time to reflect on yourself and to be growth-oriented, you're going to have a greater impact of self-development. And <laughs> same as said, if you don't find direct meaningfulness in being self-reflective or self-evaluating, you might not have as quick of a development of self or if any at all, which can also be a cause of different personality disorders or different mental disorders as a lot of them are caused by (laughs) the misunderstanding or mis-actualization of the self or not even like that, but more so like a lack of identity or understanding of what self is to that individual. And that's saying it in a really light and broad sense. But there's also studies done, which I also have to acknowledge that there we have to account for differences in self-awareness and, you know, what, like, reflective nature means to different people and how that, you know, has a direct correlation to our self-development, which looks different for everybody. And means different things for everyone, which is also why we can't judge people based off of how much they grow or where they're at in their own journey as it is directly correlated to their life experiences, which also leads me to say that we develop meaning, and there's been studies on this as well, which meaning needs context and life events to exist, but we develop meaning of who we are, which is our identity, with the creation and meaningfulness of our life story um which you can also think of if we maybe had a really difficult time in life our life story concept is maybe very much so skewed which also means that our development of meaning for our lives or who we are is skewed as well which can also correlate to different other types of mental disorders, which I don't really like calling them mental disorders, but for this case, we're going to call them that, but I don't believe that they're disorders. I just think that they're (laughs) trauma responses, really. But that's a whole other episode. But, you know, this can correlate to a lot of things like depression and anxiety. Um, You know, the more challenging and traumatic our lives have been, the more easy it is for us to at points within that concept um like challenge the meaning of our life and challenge who we are based off of those life experiences if you have a really beautiful life story which can't say that everyone does or many do but that's amazing if you do um you know develop a a higher and greater meaning of life as they know it and the you know stance that they believe that they are or like have a better understanding of their identity or and also creates a more secure attachment style which we again lead into relationships with and you know different any type of interpersonal interaction really (laughs) as you know again if we have secure attachment figures growing up we're gonna have figures or we're gonna continue to you know, process this healthy attachment with other people down the line in our lives, which is a beautiful thing, but I also don't think it's that common. But ironically, and this can also be harder to believe when you have grown up with an insecure attachment style, roughly, and this is estimated, and I guess estimated is 
50% of the population in the world is secure, securely attached. 20% is anxious, 25% is avoidant, and about 5% is fearful attached, fearfully attached. Which is quite outstanding when you really think about it, at how often we talk about mental health and all these, you know, correlations and phenomena are connected within our society and frequent topics how many people actually grow up securely attached. But, of course, all of us still have challenges in life, and that's the concept that we are kind of dealing with right now of the self and how ourselves interpret and integrate these concepts within our own lives and within ourselves and interpersonally. They're representing self. (laughs) And within that, the next one of these primary functions is the changing self which is less time-limited in that sense. It's kind of always continually happening and kind of depends on how you want to view it, but I do believe that as we grow and continue to develop new experiences, we are continually changing. So this just pretty much correlates the entire process of change within the self-concept, self-understanding, and self-expansion and development. Um. It, it pretty much involves lasting alterations in how people represent and control themselves. We can think of bigger things like major life events, age, experiences, and we can also think about littler things like how we integrate communication and how we integrate understanding of each other and, you know, I'll, I'll, or other aspects of the self, like representing and affecting into different <laughs> levels of those experiences, which kind of all accumulates together. But like I said, it involves alteration in self-representation. We're representing and affecting, which affecting can also lead to the capacity to facilitate your emotions, facilitate different, you know, understandings, facilitate different behaviors, um, different knowledge, control, evaluation, like we talked about, and same with self-representation, it applies to concepts to the self and understanding those at a deeper level, and, you know, working through self-deception and illusion, and um, different, like, self-appraisal, self-confidence, self-pity, self-regulation, and self-awareness, etc. And so, there's a large range of phenomena that concerns the self and not even just in these three primary roles again we do have those four levels of interaction the social individual neutral and molecular which all happen at the same time and in different ways and all integrated and crazy cool ways i'm not gonna go crazy into that because there's such a large expansion of how deep i can really get into this concept but understanding the different levels of ourselves how would they integrate within each other and how they work synonymously and even you know there's so many there's so many concepts i can go into like autonomy resilience biology competence agency different things like that but they all lead us to these three main primary functions of why we even have the understandings of ourselves um why this is correlated as separate sometimes from our ego, which can, not separate from our ego, of course the self is still our ego, but it is still happening at a separate level, and even closer level, I think, to source in some way, but we don't need to go there to metaphysics presently, but, you know, understanding these things about ourselves help to understand how the self works as a system that operates at social, individual, neutral, neural, 
and molecular levels. Um, if we were to understand them all, it would, wouldn't even make room for us to exist in our human experience. It wouldn't make room for us to just be human. But I do think even at that changing and self-representing and affecting levels that we can greater understand how we are the way that we are, why we work the way that we work interpersonally, socially, all those key functions, um, we can, only we really know who we are at those levels. So like social, for example, how do I present myself effectively? How, do, how does my affecting self, you know, interact at a social level? What are the behaviors that I deem as um, acceptable and re as receiving positive feedback versus what do I know is negative or morally incorrect based off of my present experiences that shape my self-perception. And same thing as individual when it comes to self-representing. How do, does my concept of self-awareness affect who I am as an individual and my place maybe even in the world or in my own understanding of who I am as a whole being and not just within the self or ego concept? <laughs> Sounds so much more complicated, but we all really truly know what it, what it means to look at that if we are self-reflecting. And again... Think about how much you reflect on yourself. How much has that self-reflectiveness impacted who you are as a person and your self-development? I think things like this are also a way to give more understanding of who you are and how you've developed and how you've integrated these things without even being aware. There's so many things that happen for us psychologically, um, biologically, <laughs> and mentally and emotionally that we aren't always... Like I, like I said, aren't always cognitive practices. Um, so I think at times it's really helpful to look at these things and to remind ourselves that we are functioning even while we don't think that we're functioning and to remind ourselves of the power that we create within our own reality and also that we perceive of ourselves to create that reality and all those different things. And that's a whole other concept of how we create our reality, but also it's still a fixed thing that we're perceiving and learning how to work through it all at the same time, so definitely don't lead too far on that word, but it's really to better understand how we operate as a human species and interpersonally and within ourselves to continue our self-development, and I don't think that you would be here if you weren't devoted to your self-development, so props to you for staying and listening, and I hope that you got something out of it today. Namaste.